Good afternoon from Jerusalem. Welcome to today's webinar series. Um, I'm personally very excited to hear both of our speakers, both of whom I have the privilege of considering friends, and uh, Dr. Jürgen Bueller, who I have the privilege of working for at the Christian Embassy. Our topic today is Purim, and uh, Dr. Bueller, I've heard you talk with us in staff. Why don't you begin our time with some of your observations? Well, thank you so much, Barry. Uh, yes, and it's indeed a, a great joy to be here together also with our dear friend Rabbi Shmuel Bowman. And um, we are talking today a little belated, I must say, about the uh, festival of Purim. This was a, a feast that was happening in Israel last week. And um, it's uh, most likely the most joyous celebration here in Israel during the year. And if you are in Israel, um, like uh, various for many years, uh, my wife and I have been here since uh, uh, more than 26 years. It's always fun to be out in Purim because you see children in masquerade, even adult masquerade, people are celebrating. And uh, as I said, it's an extremely joyous celebration commemorating one of the greatest victories in the history of the Jewish people. And um, I believe, you know, it's a, it's a festival that we don't speak too much in the church because it's not a Christian festival, but it is a message that it contains um, in, in, in the story of Purim that I believe is extremely relevant for all of us or not. The um, historical setting of the, uh, the story of uh, Purim goes back to a king that um, the Bible calls him Ahasuerus, but it is uh, in your history books, he's most likely be referred to as Xerxes, was one of the great Persian kings of the Persian Empire. Um, he was living around the time uh, 450 before Christ, and it was in the time when the Jewish people still at large was in exile in Persia. And the, the book of Esther starts with a um, a massive party. It was a party which probably none of us ever, I'm not sure about you, Shmuel, maybe you, you did it, but none of us ever did it. It was a party for 180 days. Now that's what I call really a party. And one of the reasons some people say it was that Xerxes just came back from, uh, and this coincides with also the history books that in his third year, he returned back from one of the greatest victories he had in his lifetime against the uh, Greek Empire. And he felt that's a reason to celebrate. And uh, the whole story, I, we don't have the time to go in all the detail. I encourage everybody to read it yourself in the Bible, the book of Esther. Um, the whole story ends up that the queen of the Persian Empire was deposed. Her name was Washti. And uh, um, a story developed that probably today would be the dream story of most tabloid magazines. There is this beautiful Jewish refugee girl that makes it to the top of the uh, Persian Empire. She becomes the first lady, stunning personality to look at, incredible character, very much maybe from 
uh, from one side what happened over the last years in uh, in England in the Buckingham Palace when an American of multiracial background managed to enter into the royal uh, family. But there is one huge difference. I think there is a huge difference between the character traits of the various people. And Queen Esther is really a shining example of a, a person showing dignity and leadership at the same time. So it's an amazing story. And in a way, and this is my main point that I would like to share with us today, the story actually goes um, far more back than just the year 486 when uh, historians believe it was taking place. But there is actually a pre-story uh, that was uh, predating that, uh, that entire situation. Because what you see in the book of Esther, it's quite amazing. The first few chapters, you see two parallel, um, in a way, you can almost say dream stories unfolding. Two refugees coming to an incredible uh, position in the empire. And the first one, what we read about is the, is the, the Jewish family, the family of a man called Mordechai. And you read about it in Esther chapter uh, 2, verse 5. It says here, and in Chusha, in the citadel, there was a certain Jew whose name was Mordechai, the son of Yair, the son of Shimei, the son of Kish, a Benjaminite. Now, this is quite a lot of information what you get from this man. He became later on the, 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 uh, the foster father of Esther, who later on became the, uh, the, the first lady of the Persian Empire. But this uh, Mordechai, with all the family lineage that is being learned out, wasn't just an ordinary person, but he came out of a very, very special family of the Jewish people. As he came from the family of Kish, and those of you who know a little bit the Old Testament or the Tanakh, you know that the family of Kish brought forth another very famous person in the history of Israel, and that was King Shaul or King Saul. He became the very first king of Israel, and uh, he came, the Bible said, out of one of the smallest tribes of Israel, but uh, God brought him forth to be the king over the whole nation. And this Mordechai, he came from the family of Kish, and if you look also at the other names that are mentioned, Shimei, you will find him also in uh, the second book of Samuel as one of the relatives of the house of Saul. So this was, in a way, you could say a royal family that dates back to more than 500 years in history and that has a great family legacy. And Mordechai also in Persia wasn't just an ordinary refugee, but the Bible tells us he was sitting at the gate of Susa. Now at the gate of, uh, of the city gates today, you know, if you go to the uh, Damascus gate in Jerusalem or to the Jaffa gate in Jerusalem, normally the people which are there, it's uh, sometimes a little bit shady personalities. You might find beggars there, people who want to offer you a cheap tour through the old cities. But if you were sitting at the gates of a city, 2,500 years ago, that means you have arrived at a significant position of power. Uh, if you would have been a government minister today, you would have been sitting at the gates of Susa. 
at that city. That means Mordechai was a government leader, he had some influence, he, he was of Jewish background, and he was uh, living as a, a good Jewish person in, uh, in, the, in the empire of Persia. And then the Bible tells us that he had a niece, or it actually was his cousin, um, and this was a, a beautiful uh, girl, much younger than him. Both her parents died, and uh, so Mordechai decided to become the foster father of this girl. And when there was a, a, the quest for a new queen in the empire, Mordechai encouraged his, uh, uh, his cousin. He says, maybe this is your golden opportunity. Who knows what God might bring out of that? Why don't you apply for the job to the, be the first lady? And to cut this story short, of course, Esther, we all know it, she became the queen, the first lady of Persia. Now, this is the first story that is unfolding, a dream story, a fairy tale story, somebody who made it into success uh, in a very unusual environment. And then there is another story, almost equally exciting than the other one. There was another person who was in that empire, um, which had very similar uh, traits, like the story of, Haim, uh, of, of Mordechai. And this is the story of Haman, or the person of Haman. And we read about it in Esther chapter 3, verse 1. And it says, after these things, that means after Queen Esther was appointed to be the, the, the queen of Persia, after these things, King Ahasuerus, or Xerxes, he promoted Haman, the son of Hamadetta, the Agagite, and advanced him and set his seat above all the princes who were with him. Now, when the Bible says here that he was uh, a, a, of the family of Hamadatta and an Agagite, we also know that he was not a, of Persian origin, but he also belonged to one of the people groups, the Babylonian Empire exiled. Um, maybe 50, 60 years earlier, 70 years earlier. And he was living there also as a refugee or as an exiled person in the Persian Empire. And interestingly enough, the Bible tells us also about his family, where he was coming from. And you will find actually about the family of Agag. It says he was an Agagite. You will, you will find two places in the Bible where this family is being uh, referred to, and that's quite interesting to see where it is being mentioned. In the uh, in first book of Samuel, chapter 15, this is an amazing story, and it deals, you can guess, with about whom? About King Saul, King Saul. And he was in a challenge that Shmuel, Samuel, the prophet, came to him and says, Saul, this is your golden opportunity now you can settle your kingdom, you can establish your dynasty over Israel. If you give, if you carry out the following challenge in an excellent way, God is going to confirm your kingship. So this was an amazing opportunity and at the same time a very important challenge for Saul. And what was the challenge? There was an ancient people that was considered already since the time of Exodus as the arch enemy of the Jewish people. And this was the tribe of Amalek. The Bible tells about Amalek from the very beginning of the birth of the Jewish people, when they escaped Egypt 
that there was a battle between Amalek and Israel. You read this about read about this verse in Exodus chapter 17. And this battle was so nasty and so bad. Uh, the Bible later on says in Deuteronomy, the way how Amalek carried out their warfare was not in an ordinary way, but they were strategically and intentionally hitting the weak people, those people who could not defend themselves from the people of Israel. You would call them today terrorists. So if there would have been Geneva conventions alive at that time, they were violating every single one of the Geneva conventions. That means that this was one of the most horrible, nasty, evil enemies Israel ever had. And God made a statement to Moses at the end of that battle between Amalek and Israel. It says, from generation to generation, there will be an eternal war between Amalek and Israel. And now coming back to the story of Saul, Shmuel told him, the prophet told him, he says, God is going to confirm your kingdom over Israel if you are dealing a blow to this arch enemy of Israel. If you wipe out Amalek from the face of the earth, because there is an enmity between this people and Israel uh, for all those generations. And so this was the opportunity for Saul. And uh, the story tells us in, in, in 1 Samuel 15, Saul was a victorious uh, warrior. He actually defeated them with a massive blow. But he, didn't, he did not complete the job completely as Samuel was asking him. When he returned back from the battle, Shmuel was meeting him out in the battlefield or coming back from the battlefield. And there was a bleaking that he was heard, bleaking of sheep. And Shmuel asked him, said, what is this bleaking I hear there? And the Shoal felt a little bit embarrassed because he knew the instruction was to not leave any soul alive from that people group because it was such an evil enemy. He says, well, I actually kept some sheep alive and we want to sacrifice them in the temple. So he had immediately a good excuse. And then also there was a person coming, a very tall person, and Samuel realized immediately he's not one of Saul's fighters, but he's a foreigner. And he said, who is this? Or he says, oh, I felt I need to keep him alive because he is Agag, the king of the Amalekites. And Samuel literally freaked out. He says, what are you doing? This is the person why I sent you out to battle and you keep him alive. And the Bible tells us that Samuel himself took it upon himself to deal with Agag and he executed him on the spot because he said he was responsible for the death of many, many Jewish young people in Israel at the time. And so what we learn here is that Agag was the royal family of the arch enemy of Israel. And here we are back now in the story of Esther. This was, I know, a little bit a long detour here. But we are here now 500 years later in the Persian Empire. And in a way, you can say the battle is reloaded. What was taking place 500 years ago on Israeli soil is now taking place again on the Persian Empire as those two royal families, the family of the Amalekite king Agag, Haman, and at the same time Mordechai and his uh, uh, cousin Esther, 
position themselves in a, in a very incredible power of place of position. And the story of Esther tells us that an amazing, um, yeah, a tragic situation unfolded. We have been just reading here in Esther chapter 3, verse 1, he says that uh, King Ahasuerus Xerxes promoted Haman, the Agagite. Remember, he was the descendant of the Agag kingdom of Amalek. He advanced him and set his seat above all the princes. It means he became, so to speak, the prime minister of the Persian Empire. And what a constellation that is. First Lady Jewish, Prime Minister of the Empire, Amalekite. And you can already guess this is not a good story uh, to continue. Now, the power that, God, that uh, the, the king gave to, to Haman was that everybody, all the ministers, they needed to bow down before Haman. And um, everybody did it whenever he passed through the gate of Susa. Everybody uh, very nicely bowed down for, to the new prime minister. But there was one person who didn't do it, and you can guess who it was. It was Mordechai, the Jewish, uh, uh, the Jewish minister who was sitting at the gate. And then the Bible tells us when he heard of his Jewish descent, that was the trigger for him. He got furious. And I believe that you don't read this in the story, but I do believe that what Haman was thinking to himself now we can sort out that story that took place and brought such humility to our family 500 years ago. Now I'm going to show them who is the real victor. In a very nasty way, uh, we read that Haman went to, um, to uh, Ahasuerus, the king, and he told him the following, and this is one of the most disturbing sentences in the, in the whole book of, of, of Esther for me. He went to the king, to King Ahasuerus. He says, your majesty, the king, listen. There is a certain people group. He wouldn't even mention them by name. They are scattered abroad. They are dispersed among the people in all the provinces of your kingdom. Their laws are different from those of every other people. And they do not keep the king's laws. So it is not good for the king to allow them or to tolerate them to be alive in the kingdom. Give me to be the command to destroy them completely from our kingdom. And when I was reading that passage, you know, coming from Germany, I heard almost the exact same language that was spoken in Germany against the Jewish people. They are a different people to all the people group. They have different customs and they are not for the benefit of our nation. Hitler always used this one sentence. He says, the Juden sind unser Unglück. The Jews are our unfortunate. It's the very same spirit that you find in that sentence. And he says, let's annihilate those people. Remember, Ahasuerus at that, st at that point did not know that he was talking about the Jewish people. He just trusted his prime minister. He says, well, if you feel it's good for the kingdom, let's do it. And of course, we have to understand that was a different time set today. You would definitely would not do or tolerate something like that. But the king went ahead with that. And, and Haman made a decision to kill all the Jews living in the Persian Empire. Now, this is, we can't, overestimate the significance of that law because if he would have succeeded, 
this would have been the end of the Jewish history altogether because it didn't affect only the Jews in Susa, but Persia was also controlling the province of Judea. All the Jews who lived on planet Earth were to be annihilated. And there was only one time in history, I believe, when a, single, a similar law was passed in what Ahasuerus was passing. And this was some 75 years ago in a little villa in Berlin, Wannsee, when the leaders of Germany were sitting together and made exactly the same decision. Let's wipe out every single Jew that is living in Europe. This was the famous Wannsee conference when Nazi Germany decided to annihilate every single Jewish soul from Germany. They had a nice, according to good German bureaucracy, a nice list prepared. They figured out there are 11 million people they, they need to kill. And they decided over a glass of cognac and a nice meal, they decided let's kill them all. And this is the same spirit that is unfolding here. And maybe it's being seen for the first time in full force here in the story of Esther. It's a story of the spirit of Amalek that was, I believe, the main driving force that drove Germany to do um, this darkest, to, to be the executioner of this darkest chapter, not only of Jewish history, but I believe also of human history. But it's the spirit that is maybe with a lesser a significance or lesser force seen through our history when you look at the Spanish Inquisition, when you look at the Crusades, when you look at the pogroms that were taking place all across Europe, the same attitude, there is something with the Jewish people, we need to get rid of them, we need to kill them. It is this very same spirit of Amalek. And um, it is visible even today. We saw it yesterday in The Hague. There was a lady which was said, well, from all the nations of the world, uh, no matter what tyranny what you have, no matter what human rights violation they have, no matter how they are putting innocent people in thousands in their prisons and executing people without a court case, we don't care about all that. There is just one nation that we need to attack, and that's the nation of Israel. And yesterday in The Hague, in the International Criminal Court, there was a very unjust decision made in the first court case that was being carried out against the nation of Israel for war crimes and for human rights violations. You know, of all the countries, Israel is the only democracy, the only free press in the Middle East, the only nation that takes care of all the minorities living in their territory. And out of all those countries, they singled out Israel as the nation that they need to accuse. So to come up to the conclusion of what I'm just saying here is that the story of Esther is a call to us for action in a very similar way how Esther did it. And I just want to make a few closing remarks on the strategy that Esther was applying and Mordechai was were applying in order to challenge this, I believe you can say, evil spirit of Amalek that was attacking the Jewish people. Um, there was one thing about Esther which I really want to highlight, and this had something to do with her, with her character trait. And I really, whenever I read it, I, it really touches me. And I think this was in a way an indirect way why God could give her such an incredible uh, uh, success. Esther, even, show, even though she made one of the 
not, not one of the, the most dramatic success stories that any girl could have go through in the Persian Empire. She became the wife of the king. She always kept in an incredible way her modesty. And it started in the very beginning when, when she was elected as the queen and was, or was about to be elected as the queen of Persia. Um, the Bible tells us that quite a number of beautiful women were collected. She was just one of many. And uh, every day the, 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 the king would check out another one. And we can just guess, you know, all those ladies, they said, I want to wear this and this is my dress. Please get me that pink dress. And I want to have this eye shade and please put my hair like this. The Bible says Esther did none of that. She says she inquired of the, uh, the guy who was in charge of her. She said, you tell me, what does the king like? And then it says quite amazingly, she asked of nothing except what Haggai, the king's eunuch, had uh, told her who had a charge of the woman, what he advised to her. You know, it was quite amazing that she said, okay, if you feel this is something which pleases the king, I'm going to do it. And I think this is something which separates this woman from many of the tabloid stories that you see today in our media um, around the world. And um, secondly, there is, uh, it's not only this um, amazing modesty, which reoccurs again in the book many times, but there is also something which she had to deal with herself and with her own maybe little bubble of fame and, uh, and, um, and, and glory that she achieved. When Mordechai told her, and she says, Esther, you really need to act now. Um, she got, I would call it maybe a little bit complicated. She said, oh, Mordechai, you don't know. It's not so easy than you think to go into the king's house. He didn't ask for me for 30 days now. And uh, maybe if I go to him, he will not like it. He might kill me. And she brought all kinds of good excuses. But Mordechai really had to shake her up. And he had to, had to tell her, and I'm going to read you here from chapter four. Mordechai then told her and said in reply to Esther, do not think for yourself that in the king's palace, you will escape any more than all the other Jews. You need to go. If you keep silent at this time, relief and deliverance will rise for the Jews from another place. But you and your father's house will perish. And I believe there is a, this is a multifaceted answer that Mordechai is giving here. I believe maybe Mordechai understood this is the chance of our family, the house of Kish, to get it right. Our ancestor, King Saul, he didn't do the job completely. But he says, now our father's house has the right, has the possibility to restore the honor of the Kish family. And then he says something very interesting. He says, you know, if you, if you remain silent, if you don't do it, don't think that God needs you. If you remain silent, God will save the Jewish people in another way. And for me, this is an incredible statement of faith. And it's also for all of us who are standing with Israel and who are defending Israel. It's very humbling for us to understand that in a way you can say God doesn't need us. But the question is much more, he says, if you remain silent, it's not so much that there will be an effect on the Jewish people because God will raise another savior for them. But if you remain silent, 
you and your house will perish. That means when we are challenged with situation like the ICC today, when we are challenged, you know, my country with the 70 years ago, 75 years ago, how do you, how do you behave in a situation where you are challenged with anti-Semitism? You know, God, after the Holocaust, that was the state of Israel. God took, even though it was a great tragedy, God brought out the state of Israel out of the ashes of the Holocaust. But in a way, it's much more a moral question to you and me, where do we stand on the side of that battle? It's quite amazing what Mordechai told Esther, if you remain silent, God is going to save the Jewish people, but you and your house will perish. So in a way, it is... Uh, you could say a repeat of that principle that God already put in the cradle of the Jewish people with Abraham. It says, I'm going to bless those who bless you, and I'm going to curse those who are cursing you. That means our stand with the Jewish people is not only that we need, of course, for moral sake, stand with Israel, but at the same time, it is also a question where we stand spiritually. And finally, there was an incredible dedication of Esther. And this is really something which challenges me great when, uh, greatly when I say this, when I read that. She says, I'm going to go to the king. And she says, well, maybe he will be upset if I just show up at the kingdom. He might kill me. She remembered what the king did to Vashti. He just deposed her. But she says, I'm nevertheless going to do that. Even if I die, I will die. I will die. I will be willing to take the consequences, but I'm going to do what I need to do and stand up for righteousness and on behalf of my people. And I think, you know, sadly, that's what I have to say as a German Christian. There were too few German leaders that were willing to make such a bold stand. And, you know, it's not up to me to point a finger to them because, honestly, I don't know how I would have reacted in a situation like that. But it is a reminder for all of us to already now make up our minds when necessary to speak up on behalf of righteousness, justice, on behalf of God's people, no matter what the price will be. Because in a way, we, we always need to realize, like it was in the case of Esther, history will be watching us. History is looking back to the German church, and history is going looking back to our generation. They might wonder if they read 50 years from now in the history book about this crazy court ruling in The Hague, they might look and search the internet. Let's see, what did the Christian, was there anybody who was speaking up? Did they even bother about that? And it's uh, we need to do that for ourselves and for our own uh, standing with God and for our own call for righteousness. And this is, uh, in a way, what I wanted to share with you. I went a little bit longer than I wanted to, but um, 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 this is something which was very much on my heart for today. Amen. Well, Jürgen, thank you for that. Um, and as a, a German believer, thank you for your, your openness to even look at your, your own history, your own background, your own people. Um, and I believe that's a very challenging exhortation for Christians and the church today. Um, but I'd like to, to turn to Shmuel Bowman, Rabbi Bowman, who's our guest today. And uh, first off, just ask you, Shmuel, would you just respond to that uh, brief exposition of Jürgen? Um, uh, and, and give us your response. 
you're muted. There we go. Thank you, Barry. And thank you, Jurgen, and shalom to everybody. Jurgen, your your thoughts and your comments, each one was a a lightning bolt. And uh, it just put the zap in me, and I hope that everybody feels excited and feels moved by your words. This is a very important festival, the Festival of Purim. This is an extremely important uh, account that we read in the Scroll of Esther. And, and I think all too often uh, we can uh, look at it and look at all the frivolity and look at all the, as, as you mentioned, Jürgen, it is uh, probably our, our most uh, joyful holiday of the year, the most Jewish uh, uh, joyful holiday of the year. And we can get lost and a little bit distracted in the costumes and the masks and all the fun food and everything. And that's all important. But we need to go deeper like you've done and, and really look, look under, right? Peel back the layers. First and foremost, when we look at the scroll of Esther, is in this entire scroll, which is written on parchment as a scroll, uh, and it's one of the books of the Bible, and yet not one mention of the Word of God in this entire scroll. Isn't that interesting? that the entire scroll of Esther, this book, this important part of the canon of the Torah, of the Bible, doesn't have the mention of God whatsoever. So why is it considered not only a holy book, not only a holy story, but perhaps one of the holiest stories? And I, my response is something which hopefully will, will come into and insert itself into Jürgen's uh, comments. And that is, is that it's holy because God's not mentioned in there. There's no question about it, as we all know. God is part of every fabric of every moment of every second of our lives. The fact that it's not mentioned means that instead of the open miracles, right, and the fact that, that God's presence may be seen and so felt in other uh, books of the Bible, in the book of Esther, just the opposite. Everything is hidden. Everything is just below the surface, just like in our lives today. If you think that God isn't present because there aren't any open miracles, uh, or because lightning hasn't struck when you said, now, <laughs> we're wrong. In fact, God's more present than ever in every single moment of our lives. And it's interesting that even the word Esther, right, the word Esther is from the Hebrew lastir. You hear the you hear the similarity, lastir, Esther, and that means hidden. Her name, the scroll, the scroll of Esther means the scroll of hiddenness. And so we have to look deeper. We have to go deeper, and we have to realize that God is present everywhere. And just like Jurgen mentioned in chapter in in chapter four, where where Esther rises to the to the challenge to the opportunity, to the risk of losing her life to approach the king, to petition on behalf of her people. So she knows God's with her. And as she says, if I die, I die. That's also God's will. 
And so this is an extremely important part of the story. And I think why, why it, 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 it's, it's so holy. Everything is turned around. Everything is switched around. We call this concept vafuchu, vafuchu. The entire theme of Purim is, ah, you think it looks like this? Wrong, other way around, okay? The very fact that the name Purim is the plural of the word pur, right? In Hebrew, we add a, a yud mem, an im, to a word to make it plural, right? Uh, in most cases in Hebrew grammar. So pur is purim. What's a pur? Pur means lots or lottery or chance. So we have a holiday called chance <laughs> or coincidence when in fact there is not one single moment of chance or coincidence in the entire story. So we begin to understand that we have a queen named Hidden we have a holiday called chance. I mean, the entire thing is upside down. And this is exactly why we have to go and, and look deeper. Where is God in the scroll of Esther? Where is the fact that there's nothing by chance? And like you mentioned, Jurgen, I mean, it's beautiful. There is a story taking place between Mordechai and Haman that is actually the continuation of an unfinished story from 500 years earlier by their great, 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 great grandfathers. It's amazing. It's like we, and not only that, but that story is being transported to another country. It's not in the land of Israel. It's taking place, right, in, in uh, Shushan, in uh, Susa, as you say, in, 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 in Persia. So all these things are going on. It's just an amazing story. It's a powerful story. It's, it's for me, it's one of the most meaningful. And if I just want to say one more word on that, and that's, we need to understand that the, that the moment uh, when Esther exposes Haman's plans, right, which takes place at the second of two um, private meals between her King Ahasuerus and Haman. It's at the second meal when she exposes Haman, and she exposes and says, "This is the man who is 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 going to kill my people." That, according to our tradition, this takes place on Passover. It takes place at the Passover Seder, okay, and which we know has in itself unbelievable and profound meaning <laughs> we could that's its own session but that's when that takes place that is taking place on the 14th of nisan the middle of the month of nisan which according to the calendar is considered the first month of the calendar of the jewish calendar the lots the the lottery uh that haman cast had the day of destruction, the day of annihilation. We could call it Auschwitz Day. Auschwitz Day, all this was to take place in one day. The annihilation, the extermination of the entire uh, nation of Israel in all of the 127 countries that were part of the Persian Empire was to take place on one day. So I call it Auschwitz Day. That was going to take place, you ready for this? 11 months after, yeah, Passover, which brings us to the last month of the Jewish calendar, which is Adar. That means that the Jewish people needed to deal with, even after Haman was hanged, needed to deal with one reality, and that was 
really? Is this all going to unfold? Can you imagine 11 months of the stress of wondering, I wonder if really everything's going to turn around or is it really going to happen? Okay, because what's going on is that Haman, by being given the permission by King Ahasuerus, and by the way, he bought that permission. He paid for that permission. He paid for the right to annihilate the Jewish people. What? And he then allows every anti-Semite in the Persian Empire to proudly wear a badge, or wear a badge, <laughs> however you want, wherever you want to put it, that says, I am a proud member of Haman's team. And every time for that 11 months, because they couldn't, they didn't have authorization to kill the Jews until a specific day. But you better believe that until that day, they're standing there sharpening their knives. They're standing there building, they're building the gas chambers. For 11 months, they're building the gas chambers. And they're looking at their Jewish neighbors and they're going, mm-hmm, you just wait, we're ready for you. And the Jews knew who they were but the Jews also know, knew which other nations were not standing with Haman's team. And that was an important point as well. Thank you for that, Shmuel. Um, I would uh, like to just ask up a follow-up question um, on the concept of God's hiddenness. Um, and that the implications, um, both from the story of Purim and uh, our world situation today, uh, a common question we hear is, you know, where's God in the midst of COVID? Where's God in the midst of, here in Israel, the confusion of Israeli politics? Right. So I think the answer to that question is actually in the four mitzvot, in the four uh, commandments or obligations that come at the end uh, of the of the scroll of Esther and our obligations that in mitzvot or commandments that Jews have been doing for 2,500 years every year without missing a beat and I think that those uh, four uh, commandments are going to help us with that answer uh, mitzvah number one is called mishloach manot this is where you actually um, are giving edible gifts to your neighbors and friends. The second gift is matanot le'evyonim, is we're actually giving charity, you're giving tzedakah, you're, giving, you're helping the poor. The third is the sudat purim, is the meal, the festive meal of purim. And the fourth mitzvah is actually reading the scroll. Why is that the answer to the question? Because when we act, not just talk, and with all due respect to all of us who like who pray, not just pray, okay? Because every single person on this call, you know, knows the power of prayer. But it takes one more step, and that's action, okay? Interesting that those four mitzvot, those four commandments, do not include prayer, and they don't include wishful thinking. Okay, and they're not, they, don't, they, don't, they don't include good thoughts. Action, give something, give a gift, help the poor, have a meal, have a festive meal, and read this. So all four of these things are actions. And I think, Barry, 
that that's the lesson that we have today. Okay, you want to know where God is? <laughs> God has not left. It's inside. It's inside of us. And God is, is, is saying to you and to me the exact same thing that Mordechai said, just like, um, just like Jürgen uh, quoted for us in chapter 4. Except there's one more line, which I think is really beautiful, which is the next line after, right? After Mordechai says, okay, well, this is what you have to do. And Nestor's like, well, you know, you know protocol. And he says something really, really powerful. And it's something that we all, <laughs> we should all look at this. It's chapter, it's, it's chapter four, verse 13. Okay. And he says the following. And he says, he says, he says, Bad Zot. He says, listen, Esther, listen, you don't want to go talk to King Ahasuerus. As we say in Yiddish, nishkeferlich, nishkeferlich. Doesn't matter, doesn't matter, right? Doesn't matter. Deliverance, relief, salvation will come to the Jewish people from somewhere else. From somewhere else. But you know what? You and your father's house will perish, and who knows? You know, you will be dust in the in the in, in the pages of history. I believe, Barry, that God is looking at you and looking at me and looking at Jurgen and looking everybody at everybody on this call and saying, How are you going to respond? What's what actions will you take 2,500 years ago and today in 2021? What will you do? That's what I'm waiting to see. You don't want to do it? Don't worry about it. Someone else will do it. But this is your moment. Amen. Thank you for those thoughts. It, it reminds me of something we were just talking with our staff devotions um, about the words of the prophet Isaiah, that the Gentiles would carry the Jews back on their shoulders for Aliyah, the return. And I made the comment. I said, God doesn't need ICEJ to do that. If we don't, he will find other Christians to do that. But thankfully, we have the privilege of cooperating with him in, in his plan. And, you know, it's, it's very much the situation. We can say yes and be a part of what he's doing. Or we can say no and he will find another. He, he will work out what he's doing. Right. Well, I, I love what Jurgen was saying before, you know, years from now, yeah, uh, people will be checking the records, they'll be checking the archives. Who knows if there'll be a Google or a Schmoogle. We don't know what it'll be uh, in the future, but whatever it is, there will be archives, there will be records, and someone's going to say, hmm, so how, who did step up and, 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 and speak out for the, for the Jewish nation? And the fact that it will say ICEJ, you know, took a stand, not only wrote a, wrote a letter, activated its its membership, and so on and so forth. So, you know, it, it's not about fame. Yeah, it's not about it's not about that. Uh, you know, another you know dedication plaque or an award. That's not what it's all about. There's something very very powerful about opening up history books. Very important. It's no accident that, you know, in the middle of, uh, of the Megillah, and by the way, it's smack in the middle of the Megillah. It is like, literally, if I were to take the Megillah and open the entire thing, it's literally going to be halfway. Chapter 6, verse 1, 
Balayla, right, at night. The king couldn't sleep. And what does he do? Lahavi at Sefer Hazichronot. Bring the book of records. He wants to read it. It's not to put him back to sleep. It's because there's a reason why he has insomnia. Not only that, but we have a tradition, the way we even read it in the Hebrew. It says, At night. And by the way, that's smack in the middle. I'll tell you a little secret. Can I tell you a secret? I, okay, this is, anybody watching this, don't, best not to talk about it. But when a Torah scribe writes the book of Esther, you ready for this? I hope I'm allowed to tell you this. He writes, I write, from the word Belilah. You actually begin at the middle of the scroll, and that's where you start writing. And then you, you head back to the beginning. And we read it like this, Belilah hahu nadana shnat, you ready for this? Hamelech means the king. Hamelech. We use the same tune as we do on Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur, on the high holy days. Because we understand that something tremendous is happening here as he's opening up what? The book of Zichronot. And what happens on, on, on Rosh Hashanah? God is what? Opening up the book of life. It, it's, it, it all parallels. It's really powerful. And the same thing is happening. That great book is going to be opened up and that book is going to read who stood with the Jewish people and who stood with those who wanted to kill them. So it's pretty big stuff, Barry. Amen. Amen. Barry, if I can uh, yes, add, please. add to that, you know what, what you just mentioned, you know, if you don't think yourself that you will be safe, it reminded me on uh, Martin Niemöller, one of the uh, guys who ended up in concentration camp, he was one of the confessing church members, and uh, he, he, he put out a quote later on when they talked to him about it. So what, what happened? What, what's, what's really going on? And he made this famous quote. He says, you know, they came first to the communist. And I thought, well, I'm not a communist. Why should I speak up to them? So that's okay. Then they came to the, to the, the union leaders. He says, well, I have not much to do with the union leaders. Why should I bother about it? Then they came to the Jews and said, well, I'm not Jewish. Why should I bother about that? And he says, and then they came to me. There was nobody who was willing to speak up for me because they all were gone. And I think that's a lesson. Even what Mordechai was telling Esther, don't think if you remain silent, it actually will end up with the consequence you will have to pay for that. And there is a saying, you know, they've always first come to the Jews and then they also go to the Christians. We should never think, well, it's just something for another people group. It doesn't matter about us, but we, we need to take that very serious. Secondly, what you just said, Shmuel, about, you know, it's, um, it needs a practical approach. And there is a parallel to that story from Esther, also to this very first battle of Amalek in the book of Exodus. You actually have both kinds, a, a dual approach where... Exodus tells you how Moses is on the mountain with Aaron and Hor, and they are praying and they are lifting up the hands of Moses, but there is a physical battle being carried out down at the field. And you see the same in Esther, she says, I'm going to pray and fast for three days. But then she says, I need to take I think that's all that's, uh, in a way, you know, talking to an attitude it cuts back in the Lutheran time they called it walking and praying 
And uh, that's something that which always we should never become over spiritual and just say, well, our prayers will fix it. There needs to be always a practical outcome from our prayers. Exactly. And it's, it's, and it's so, so true. The, the, the parallels and the, the source going back to that battle to Amalek, and he, we find it in, in, in the book of Deuteronomy in Sefer Devarim in chapter 25. And there is a mitzvah there, and it comes out, we actually read it, it's called Parshat Zahor, which means the reading of, of remembering Amalek. And it's very, very interesting. It's a very strange uh, passage because on the, hand, on the one hand, it says, remember Amalek for what they did to you, what the nation of Israel, when you were going through the wilderness. And then it says something really interesting, and it talks about the fact that you shall uh, erase the memory of Amalek. So what is it? Do you remember Amalek or do you erase Amalek? You know, it's, 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 it sounds a little uh, schizophrenic, you know, uh, what am I going to do? Because if you, if you erase the memory, then what do you need to remember for? I think that the answer is, is, is that the erasing and then the remembering is an ongoing process. It's not a one-time thing. You, we can't sit around and, and say, you know what? Uh, I, I was, I did it already. I did my thing already. Uh, yeah, back a year ago, ten years ago, previous generation, we've done our thing. I'm out. No, the Bible says in every generation, at all times, there will be an ongoing process of doing that mitzvah, of doing that obligation, of remembering and erasing Amalek. It's an ongoing, it's an ongoing process, as we see. That's very powerful, Rob. Yeah, it is. Um, so the other thing I just wanted to mention on this is is the fact that again we need to look at the Hebrew, and again look at the, pow the, the how powerful this this festival is, this holiday is for for uh, for all of us. But as a Jewish holiday, it's interesting. We call it Chag Purim, right? The festival of Purim. So there's another holiday that sounds very similar, and that's Yom Hakipurim, Yom Kippur, Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement. What? How could the two of those things even have share similar names? Yom Kippur, we fast, it's sad, nah. introspection, you spend a lot of time on your kind of like in deep contemplation, prayer, tshuva, asking for forgiveness, Purim, we're eating, we're drinking, there's food, we're dressing up. How could it possibly be similar? Well, the interesting thing is, is that we say Yom Hakipurim. Yom Kippurim, Yom Kippur, the word K, the letter K before a word means like, which means Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement, is like Purim. In meaning that Purim actually, if you think about it, is actually on a higher level. And it's interesting because Yom Kippur, as powerful as it is, it's all spiritual. There's no action. We don't even eat. You just go, you dress in white, you don't have anything to do with anybody else. You go to synagogue or you stay at home and you're just in deep prayer. And that's really, really amazing. But it's like, in other words, it's not even as great as, Yom, as, as Purim, which is about doing, it's about action and finding your role in that story. Hey man, well, that's an amazing uh, exhortation. Um, and for all of you listening, um, if you did not catch our last two webinars, which were um, educational about this whole process in the International Criminal Court, 
and how you cannot appeal or, or petition to the court to protest, but you can appeal to the 120 plus nations that are a member of the court and they can speak to the legality or the right or wrong. Um, I do recommend you go back and watch those videos because those were great educational information about this uh, totally illegal and unjust process being proposed in the International Criminal Court and how you can influence your governments who do have, if their members have influence there. So that's very practical instruction on how you can pay, play a part. Um, Jürgen, would you have any other questions for Shmuel about uh, this amazing story of Esther? Yeah, I wanted to ask Shmuel, you know, I remember Purim from all the years I was here as, uh, like we said, a very joyous celebration. People were dressing up. Now this, the whole nation was in a lockdown. So how did you celebrate Purim this year? It was, yeah, it was a lot quieter than we have in previous years. Um, but we found ways of doing it. We found ways of, uh, for example, uh, delivering mishloach manot, uh, edible food gifts to our neighbors. We, we did it in smaller circles, I guess, of, um, in our social circles. Um, so instead of going out and delivering to many smaller numbers, we found online ways, for example, of, uh, of donating food. Uh, uh, to uh, to people in need, and we found ways of of donating online uh, in lieu of food gifts, so that we could help wonderful charitable organizations, <clears throat> as well as making donations as well. We were able to do that. In other words, gifts to the poor. We were able to do that online uh, because we didn't have any, not one. Usually, we have poor people coming to our door on Purim, knocking on the door, and it's our joy to be able to we always leave uh, we have like a jar of, uh, of change so that we can give to every person who comes to our door you know not one single poor person came to our door this year so we were able to uh, give that do that uh, online so there is a uh, also the miracle of the internet uh it also has a good side to it um and things like that our 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 festive meal was uh, much smaller um but we still had a wonderful festive meal. We enjoyed a beautiful bottle of Israeli wine, a nice bottle of Cabernet Sauvignon from the hills of Judea. And so we were able to do things smaller, and everybody says the same thing. Next year, we'll make up for it. And I still, I still wore a beautiful, I still wore a costume. I had a, a hat like you know with stars on it i looked a little bit like merlin the merlin the uh the wizard a little bit so you know i did it you're on mute you're on mute jürgen in the q a section uh Deshaun aaron is asking beyond actions refuting icc and any other proactive steps and what I want to suggest, and maybe any other ideas, Barry and, 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 and Shmuel, is that, you know, there are always, in the course of the year, many opportunities where you can stand up and defend the Jewish people. And there might be something in your country where you are living in, where a law is being passed or statements are being made in the, in the papers. And you should never underestimate the power of one. I learned this many years ago from a member of parliament from Holland, 
who encouraged us. He says, please, please send letters to your parliamentarians, to the people who you are giving your vote to. And I tell well, no, he's never going to read that. And he says, well, you're right. I might never read all those letters. But we have a very simple arithmetic. He says, usually in my uh, election circle, I know if I have out of experience one letter from a person, usually there are two and a half thousand people out there who do think the exact same thing, but they would never bother writing me a letter. So he says, if you write letters and if you make your point about a certain issue, and we are here, I see here on this call 50 people, and I, I, I see on Facebook there are many more who are joining us. If you would take that to heart and approach our parliamentarians, this is, a, is the, it's a, a magnitude of voices that should, we should never underestimate. Write letters to your newspapers. If you read an article, you visited Israel, you saw Israel, and you feel there is false information, write them. I have seen the land of Israel. I visited multiple times. What you are writing is opposite to what I experienced. And just give your side to the story. And it's so important to have our voice being heard. I just want to add to that because 100%, I think, uh, I think the ICJ is, has positioned uh, itself for such a time as this. And the first and foremost resource to go to is the ICJ and find out different ways. And if, and if you have any questions, right, they can contact the ICJ and, uh, and get more information. I would also add that throughout the world, Jewish communities are feeling under attack because this international, internationally recognized court is now basically saying that the Jews have committed war crimes, which might, uh, in many cases, has validated uh, many anti-Semitic groups and individuals around the world to point to Jewish communities outside of Israel and say, ah, you see that? You guys, you know, you're not so good. And therefore, maybe it's open season on the Jewish community. So perhaps approach your local Jewish community, approach the rabbi, approach the Jewish leadership and say, here I am, you know, you can say this, um, you know, that you're, that you're a Christian and that you're standing with Israel. Is there anything that you can, you can do for that Jewish community? And I think that that will give, bring great comfort. Amen, Shmuel. Those are wonderful suggestions. And just following up on that, I know that in some communities in the U.S., when there have been uh, acts of anti-Semitic vandalism, paintings, swastikas on the synagogue or in the Jewish uh, cemeteries. Um, and sometimes it's a pastor, sometimes it's just Christian leaders in the community have approached the, the leader of the Jewish community or the leader of the synagogue and say, we are against that. Can we help clean it off? You know, it's something very simple, but it communicates um, really profoundly to a community when they feel like they're under attack. Absolutely. And, and, and as an extension of that, uh, the listenership uh, may want to even approach, if you're not, if you're not a, a, a leader in your community, if you're not the pastor, if you're not a leader, then go to your pastor and go to your leader and ask them point blank, what are you doing as the leader of our community to stand with Israel? And I'll even be as bold to say that if your pastor or your leader doesn't provide you with a satisfactory answer, you may want to look for another church because 
uh, now is the time, not later. That may be, you know, we're, we're coming to a time when things are very black and white. It's very much like the time in the Purim story. Are you with Haman? Are you with Haman? Or are you not? Okay. And uh, if you're standing silently right now, if, you're, if your pastor or your church, your leadership is kind of like, nah, you know what, uh, best not to make a noise right now. It's, you know, you know, now is the time you may want to think differently. Go to the ICEJ, contact them, get guidance from them in terms of where you may be, uh, you know, where you can apply your, your actions. Amen. Thank you for those suggestions, Well, um, Another practical su suggestion I'm going to put out for those of you who do receive our emails from ICEJ, um, and you, if you're aware of the Jewish calendar, you know that coming up in the coming weeks, we will have Passover. And one of the things that ICEJ does is we provide food gifts to poor Jewish Israeli homes who would not have the food necessary for a, a joyous Passover celebration. Um, and you can go online through the website, icej.org, and you can help us, you know, as Swell said, you may not be able to give the food to the poor yourself, but you can help ICEJ give to the Jewish community here that would be in need. And that's another practical way to show your, your faith and your love for the Jewish community. Jürgen, would you like to make any final comments? Well, I think we, we heard them today, and uh, Shmuel, thanks so much. I, I learned quite a bit again when listening to you about uh, Jewish traditions and customs and understanding during the time of Passover, Purim. And um, I think it's important, you know, to make a decision even right now. You know, it's good to get all the input and the information, but even before you get home from your computer, maybe put something in your to-do list or maybe put a note that you should do a, take a practical step. Go. I think there is a link that we are uh, sharing and uh, maybe Calera or whoever is out there as a Zoom admin, if we can provide the people how they can watch the ICC uh, court hearings, I think it should be on our Facebook barrier where, where can people watch the, uh, the previous session, you know? Um, I am not sure if it's Facebook or YouTube. Let's see if they've posted it here. Well, you can always take one of these. <laughs> yeah, the problem is I don't, I don't know the, the link right now. So we need, I need help here. We need help from our... Yeah, he's uh, asking our, for the, our link where they can reference our previous two webinars with the information on the ICC the legal information and background and the practical action steps. Um, My gut feeling is that you should go on our Facebook page and scroll down a little bit, go to last week's Thursday, and then the, the week before on Thursday, you should find the live broadcast there that you can rewatch. And if you can't find, please send us an email and I give you, I think, Barry, the info uh, email, that's probably the right one. Yeah, the info at icej.org would uh, would get to somebody who would get the answers back. So you just got the, the email here in the chat section. If you don't find it, send us an email and we will get you the link and the way how you can connect uh, uh, with those sessions. They are very important and they do need action. So yes, and our producer, so has, 
our producer has just confirmed that the ICC seminars are available on both our Facebook page and our YouTube channel. Good. I, I saw a question, Shmuel, here. Are there any songs you are singing? Do you have a closing song for us? <laughs> absolutely, absolutely. So, um, so we have, we have, uh, let me just see here for a second. One of the, one of the, uh, one of the songs that we sing on Purim and on Hanukkah. And both of those festivals have differences and similarities, but in both cases, they have to do with um, what it means to, for the Jewish nation to be in peril and then to, and to then to be, uh, to be saved and to be, to be under God's protection. So we say, Al Hanisim, Al Haporkan, Val Hagvorot, Val Chua, Chasinu, Lavotenu, which means we are grateful and thankful for all the miracles um, and in all the things that God has done um, in our, uh, to our uh, forefathers and foremothers um, in their day at this time, which means it's not a song about uh, history. It's a song about our present day as well, right? Because when we say, at those in those days in the in those days at this time right we are living in this time just as we were living in those days alhanisim it goes like this alhanisim ve'alapur you can clap ve'alapur kan ve'alagvurot ve'alachuot ve'alamilchamot shasita lavotenu bayamim ayam b'zman azeh God is fighting our battles. God is fighting our battles with us these today as God did in the in the in in the olden days. Yeah. Amen, Shmuel. Well, Shmuel and Jürgen, thank you very much. Um, and Shmuel, my friend, I look forward to, now that the lockdown's ending, we can get together and uh, have a meal again. Yeah. Um, and for those of you listening, we, we say uh, somewhat jokingly, because we're Christians and he's a Jewish rabbi, but also with great respect. Shmuel is, is kind of our rabbi in-house. He's who we turn to for questions of the Hebrew text. Um, you know, I'm, I'm with great uh, joy remembering our meal where we talked through Psalm 51 and the prayers of David there. And so thank you for being with us and our guest today. And Jürgen, thank you for uh, your comments on uh, Purim and the Book of Esther. Wonderful. A great pleasure. Shalom. Thank you. Shalom and God bless you, everybody. Thanks, Shmuel. It was a great time together. Amen. Thank you.